the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses gave the Israelites a brief history of how God had liberated them from Egypt and proved his faithfulness these 40 years of wandering the desert wilderness. Moses was going to remind them that God was good, not because of anything they did nor anything they were. God chooses to be good on the basis of his own nature. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 8 was all about remembering. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God led you through this wilderness. And it's important to remember what God has done for us because forgetting leads to pride, right? That's what we learned last week. Forgetting leads to pride. We neglect our relationship with the Lord. We think we're okay. We think we've got this. Well, in chapters 9 and 10, Moses explains that that same pride, if Israel, they overlooked the Lord, that pride would cause Israel to think that God gave them the land because they're so good. But the truth is, being so good is a description that belongs to God alone, right? God is so good, the way the the song goes. He's so good, he's so good to me. But that's a description that belongs to only him. And so as Moses rehearses Israel's past rebellion against God, he hopes that the sharp contrast of their rebellion with God's goodness will drive the lesson home, that they stay humble and they don't forget the Lord. They remember he's good. They're the ones who've been rescued. And as we remember with Israel tonight, you know, might we too come away with that right conclusion that not unto us, O Lord, but unto you be the glory for you alone are good. So chapter nine, we begin in verse one. Moses says, hear, O Israel, listen up, O Israel, important. You are to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations that are greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fenced up to heaven, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims whom you know and of whom you have heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? Understand therefore this day that the Lord your God is he which goes over before you. As a consuming fire, he shall destroy them and he shall bring them down before your face. So shall you drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said unto you. Speak not thou in your heart, after that the Lord your God has cast them out from before you, saying, For my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord does drive them out from before you. Not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart do you go to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God does drive them out from before you. And that he may perform the word which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here we see that Moses says, this is a big day, Israel. He says, this day you're going to pass over Jordan to go in and conquer these other nations. In our minds, of course, we may not be in the book of Joshua till, I don't know, 2033. But the book of Joshua is just a few weeks from happening on a timeline wise. As Moses is giving these speeches, they're just over a couple days before he goes up into the mountain and he dies. And then I think it's a couple of two weeks later, then Israel goes in and they, they take the land under Joshua. What Israel 
Israel's about to do is huge. They've been preparing for this for 40 years. And so he says, listen up. You're about to take a big step. You're about to do something momentous. So listen up. I have something important to say. And first off, he reminds them of something they already knew. He says, you're going to go in and possess nations that are greater and mightier than yourself, cities that are huge and fenced up to heaven, walls that go really high, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims. Now, how did they know this? Well, from the spies' reports. This is almost verbatim what the spies said when they went into the land. They said, it's a good land like God said, but we can't take it because, and then they listed all these reasons. It's interesting when Joshua and Caleb said, no, we can take it. They didn't deny that there were walled cities, bigger armies, and giants. They didn't deny that. So why does Moses remind them of something that frightened them before? Well, to confront those realities with a greater reality. That even though their task may be huge, their God is way bigger. So he says in verse 3, understand therefore this day. Moses says, you have heard what you're facing, but I want you to know something of greater import. He says, your God, first off, he is leading the charge. He wants Israel to realize three things here. Number one, God is leading the charge. He says, understand therefore this day that the Lord your God is he which goes over before you. Sometimes we can respond to problems by ignoring them, right? We kind of hope it just goes away, especially if it's something that's particularly annoying, like a water leak. Because you, th- you think, oh, what do I do? I remember when we had a, the water bill came in at the first church I pastored, and it was like 1200 bucks. And I'm like, what's going on? And so I went up there, and they're like, oh, we found a water leak. Da-da-da. And I was like, oh, what am I supposed to do about this? I, mean, I can't see it. It's obviously underground somewhere. And they're like, well, we have like forgiveness for the first time. You know, so I called the landlord because we were renting a storefront at the time, and they took care of it, thank God. But I mean, those are one of those things where it's like, you know, you just want to pretend it's not there because you don't even know how you're going to tackle it. There are entire religions based on the idea that what we see isn't real. Hinduism, Buddhism, that everything is all, it's all a mist. Christian science, that's a Christian cult. This is all not real. Where you find happiness or where you find heaven or how you get to heaven or nirvana is when you finally come to the realization that none of this is real. There's no pain, there's no agony, there's no problems. And when you realize that, then poof, it all goes away and you're in nirvana. The Bible doesn't teach us that at all. It teaches us to face our problems. We're to look at them, though, in light of the one who's the most powerful being in all the universe, right? We don't just go, well, yeah, I've got real problems. But we look at them in light of the fact that Almighty God is leading the charge for us as well. That's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. And he'll make your path straight. He'll direct your paths. Well, how powerful is our God? If this is a big thing and he's bigger, how powerful is he? I love what the rest of verse three says. It's the second thing Israel needs to realize. They need to realize here also that their God is unstoppable. He says here, as a consuming fire, he shall destroy them. He shall bring them down before your face. So shall you drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said unto you. Israel needs to realize that these guys may be tough, but their God who's leading the charge, he's unstoppable. The word they're consuming, it means that which causes destruction. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 with me, because this phrase that he's a consuming fire is mentioned here in Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. What does it mean that he's a consuming fire? Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved. How many kingdoms do we see moved in our lifetime? There are countries that exist today that didn't exist when I was younger. Things change, don't they? We're going to receive a kingdom which cannot be moved, and seeing that's true, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. 
See, unlike kingdoms that can come and go, unlike nations that may come and go, the Lord is unstoppable. Anything he sets out to destroy is destroyed. If he is for me, then no one can stand victorious against me because nothing that God sets out to do is thwarted. And so it will be that way for Israel's enemies in the land. Because of how overwhelmingly Israel will win, the Lord says, I'm going to destroy them. They're going to fall right before your face. It's not even like, you know, you're just going to pray and things just work out. No, the Lord's like, you're going to see it happen right in front of your eyes. Now, because of how overwhelmingly Israel will win, they will be tempted to think, man, God's blessing us and judging them because we're better than them. We're better than everybody else. But that is a very dangerous way to think because it ignores a very important truth, my own sin. And that's a third thing Israel needs to realize. Not only is God leading the charge, not only is their God unstoppable, but God isn't doing this because they're so good. It says here in verse four, speak not thou in your heart. After that, the Lord your God has cast them out from before you saying, well, before my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. That's why God's doing it because I'm so righteous. I'm so holy. I'm so good. But if that were true, then they would be victorious because they'd earned it from God, right? Like God would owe it to them because they'd been so good. Moses says, no way. God's doing this for two reasons. Number one, he says, but for their wickedness of these nations, the Lord does drive them out from before you. So the first thing is the Canaanites had done great evil and they needed to be judged. But secondly, verse five, not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart do you go to possess their land, but for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God does drive them out from before you and that he may perform the word which the Lord swear unto your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. See, God made a promise to their forefathers, and God keeps his promises. He keeps his word. I must never think that God has to bless me when I do something right. Even the blessings that come from my obedience to the Lord are given because he's gracious, not out of debt. For example, the children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, that it may be well with you and all that kind of stuff. It's not like the Lord's going up there well. I hadn't planned on blessing them, but now they've been obedient to their parents. I guess I have to bless them. I owe them. That's not the way it works. The Lord doesn't owe us anything. So even the blessings that come from obedience, they're all out of his grace, never out of debt. When I approach obeying or serving the Lord as a means of putting God in my debt, I'm entering into a legal relationship with God instead of a loving one. And that's not the relationship that God wants with us. Legal relationships have contracts. But when I do this for you, Lord, then you must do this for me. But then when God doesn't give us what we believe we're owed, we get angry. We say he isn't faithful and therefore he's not worthy of my future obedience. I know people who have walked away from the Lord because they had that mindset. I did what God told me to do and he took my child home. God is not good, or God is not fair, or God is not just. Now, you might be thinking, but didn't Israel have a legal covenant with God, a legal contract with God? Yes, but even though they did, they were to function in a loving relationship with him. Not one based on God owing them anything, but one based on their faith in his grace. And that's what God wants for me. And when I stay humble, whether it's in success or in failure, he lavishes his grace upon me. Not because he owes it to me, but the very nature of grace is a free gift. He just lavishes his grace upon me because he's good. Now, let me ask you a question. Doesn't that sound like a better way to relate to God? Instead of having to go, well, Lord, I I did read my Bible today and I went to church last week and I was nice to the dog, so could you please bless me? I really would like this promotion, Lord. And it's funny how we do stuff like that with God sometimes. And we do the opposite too, where we kind of like, the Lord's kind of drawn us. He's like, come seek my face about this cool thing. Come seek my face about, you know, this thing that you're nervous about, but it's exciting and and it'd be good for you or for your family, but you, you don't want to talk to me about it. Why? Because, well, I didn't go to church last week, or I didn't read my Bible today, or I wasn't nice to the dog. Both ways it works that way, in a negative. We don't ever want to approach that way. 
in my prayer time, it's almost a religious thing for me. I, I hope it's not religious, but you know, where I say, Lord, I'm not asking this because I think I deserve it. I know I don't. I'm asking it simply because I need it or Lord, simply because you're good. But I've found that that's a much better way to have effective prayer life with the Lord. Because here's the thing, if you come to God and you're like, okay, Lord, I'm gonna work really hard at this and would you please like bless the business? And the Lord's like, I kind of wanted to bless the business already. You didn't need to tie it to your behavior. But now we've got this legal thing going on where if I do do it, then you might think you earned it, whatever. And now we've got to do a whole different work. And sometimes it prevents the Lord from blessing us in ways that he wants to because it might puff us up or it might cause us to enter into this legalistic relationship with him. And God doesn't want that. So I'd ask you tonight, do you relate to God in a legal way or do you relate to God in in that loving way based on faith and grace? When I find myself relating legally to God, it's usually because I haven't been honest with myself about what I deserve. When you begin to think and bargain with God, and you're kind of like, okay, Lord, you know, I've been working on this, and, and so now I'm going to pray for that thing I've always wanted to pray for, but didn't think I could until I started working on this. You start bargaining with God, and, and it's, it's usually because we have, start having an inflated opinion about ourselves. And so Moses, as he finishes that thought, he reminds Israel that their past isn't righteous. If they're going to have an honest assessment of themselves, they need some reminders here. Their entire history has been rebellious toward God. Verse 6, he says, Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God gives you not this good land to possess it for your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you did depart out of the land of Egypt until you came unto this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Well, thanks for the pep talk, Moses. From the day, I, I mean, that's like things we tell people, you don't, don't do that in marriage counseling. In marriage counseling, we tell couples, don't do that. Because inevitably, this happens in the marriage counseling, okay? Person looks over at their spouse and they go, you never, you know, you never care about that. Or you always say that. Or you're always on my case about this. And those are very powerful words that are probably 99.9% not true. You always get mad when I do that. Every time I do that? No, you're not being honest. I mean, all you're doing is saying something hurtful because you're hurt because it has happened more than once or maybe it's happened frequently and you feel in that moment because you're hurt like it's, it's every time and it's so a hurtful word comes back. But that's not a right way to communicate. If you're married, try to take away you never or you always out of there because you're automatically putting the other person on the defense rather than trying to work toward a solution. Moses breaks that rule here, and he says, you guys have been rebellious from the day you came out. He goes, you're a stiff-necked people. The word stiff-necked, it means stubborn, hard-headed, and unyielding, and it's doubled in the Hebrew for emphasis, says it twice. You are stiff-necked as stiff-necked can be, (laughs) is what the Lord's saying. Now, why would Moses say that? Well, because they had been rebellious against the Lord from the day that they came out of Egypt. Just as Israel must not overlook all that God did to get them here to this point of the edge of the promised land, They must not overlook how much they defied and disobeyed the Lord the entire way. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second, aren't we supposed to forget those things that are behind? I mean, I'm a new creation now. Aren't I supposed to focus on the things that are ahead, knowing Jesus better? Yeah, you're right. But in context, that chapter in Philippians, which talks about leaving those things behind, it's not talking about our failures. It's talking about our successes. It's talking about the things that we could be proud about. And those are things that we need to continually leave behind, which means sometimes we need to remember. I certainly should never live in condemnation. I should never think I can't approach God or that God can't use me because of my past. And I also should not dwell on my failures. If you do that, you will quickly become depressed because they are many. They are legion. But it is unhealthy to pretend that your past failures didn't happen or to think that you're not capable of those things right now. That's unhealthy. Paul didn't forget his past. He brought it up to the Philippians. In fact, he brought it up in quite a few letters. But when Paul brought it up, 
when he was remembering those past achievements, he dropped them in the trash can all over again. He says, I count them, but dung. He dropped them in the trash can all over again because those achievements, those things that he was proud of, those things he did in the past, they led him to kill people thinking he was doing God a service. He never wanted to return to that way of thinking again. And so he remembered some of those things at times just so he could make sure they were still in the trash can. Moses sums up all their past failures here in just this big, broad statement, but he feels like this is a serious enough issue that he needs to bring up a few specific instances that were really bad. And so the first one he brings up is the issue with the golden calf. Look at verse 8. Also in Horeb, that's another name from Mount Sinai, you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry with you to have destroyed you. Now when I was gone up into the mount to receive the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, even the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I abode in the mount for 40 days and 40 nights, I neither did eat bread nor drink water. And the Lord delivered unto me two tablets of stone written with his finger, written with the finger of God. And on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spoke with you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, even the tablets of the covenant. And the Lord said unto me, Arise and get you down quickly from hence, for your people which you have brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside out of the way which I commanded them. How? They have made them a metal image. This was so evil that God was going to wipe them out. Their defiance and their disobedience was so bad in this instance that God's justice required he wipe them out. Why was it so evil? Well, Moses explains. He goes, when I went up, verse 9, when I went up into the mount to receive those tablets, even the tablets of the covenant which the Lord your God made with you, he goes, I went up there because just a few days earlier, the Lord spoke from the mountain fire and thunder and lightning and this ominous thing. He spoke the Ten Commandments and you guys were so frightened you ran away. That's the only reason I'm up on this mountain is because you guys were frightened because you heard those Ten Commandments. You shall not have any graven images. And you know, you're looking over at your spouse going, did you kill him yet? The the images? Because I think we're dead if we didn't. That fire is going to be on us any second. Thou shalt not lie. I mean, everybody was dead at that point. They're thinking in their mind. As the commandments are coming forth, they all knew they were all guilty. And so they ran and they hid behind their tent. And when Moses came back, he goes, hey, the Lord's not here to kill you. And they're like, no, no, we get it, Moses. But how about you go speak with him and you tell us what he says and we'll do whatever he tells us to do. That was the commitment they made. They entered into that covenant with God that Moses would be their mediator, but that they would do whatever God told them to do. Moses was up there for 40 days, 40 nights, it says. No bread, no water. Again, that's a miracle. There's no other way to explain that. You can go probably about 40 days without food, but you can't go much longer than a week without water, probably not even that long without water. So it was a miracle there. But while he's up there, what's going on? Moses didn't go up there until after Israel agreed to the covenant. But they didn't last very long, did they, in that commitment? So why did Israel break that commitment so fast? Well, Moses had been gone for 40 days. They didn't know where he was. They hadn't seen him. They suspected God had gotten angry and killed him. I mean, obviously God with the fire and the lightning and everything, he's probably angry at somebody. Moses surely messed up at some point during those 40 days. So people began to whisper, what are we going to do now? Who's going to lead us? Are we going to stay in this desert forever? And some even suggested going back to Egypt. So they came to Aaron and said, Aaron, we need a, we need a solution. Now that shows a trust problem. They didn't trust the Lord. So they looked for something visible to trust in, something that they were used to from their old life in Egypt, an idol, an idol. Well, they got all these trust issues and they're breaking their covenant with God already. God's up there on the mountain explaining to Moses, lovingly teaching Moses about all the worship rituals and rites that were necessary so that every Israelite could be close to him. That's what's going up on the mountain. 
And God codifies that deal by writing the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone with his own finger. Can you see how opposite these two scenes are? One where it's just full of love, full of provision, and this other one that doesn't trust God at all and has already broken its commitment. Can you understand why God was so upset? And so the Lord said, get you down. They've made an image. But before Moses can go down, verse 13, what did that evil require God to do? Well, it says, furthermore, the Lord spoke unto me, Moses is saying, I have seen this people. (laughs) I've been looking at these folks for a while and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. They're stubborn, they're unyielding. I'm not gonna be able to change them. So let me alone, which means step out of the way, Moses. I know I just said go down, but step out of the way that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. We'll start over with you, Moses. It'll be bigger, stronger, better. Thankfully, Moses did not leave God alone. He interceded for the people before he went down to see what was going on. And thankfully, God didn't destroy them. But that doesn't mean what they did was no big deal. It doesn't mean it was a minor failure. This was a big deal. And Moses, he sees just how big it is when he comes down. Verse 15. So I turned and I came down from the mount. The mount, it burned with fire. I mean, God was angry. And the two tablets of the covenants, they were in my two hands. He is carrying one in each hand. He says, and I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God and you had made you a molten calf. Now God had already told him that they'd made a metal image, but it's like Moses comes down, he's carrying these things and when he sees it, he can't believe it. He's like, you'd actually done it. You had made a metal bull and you were worshiping it. And then there is a colon there, which means an indefinite pause. Moses just stood there stunned. What are they thinking? And so it says, you had turned aside quickly out of the way which the Lord your God had commanded you. The word there turned aside, it means you had forsaken. You had deserted the way that God had told you to go after you'd committed to it so fast. It didn't just stun Moses what they had done, but even more how quickly they'd left the Lord after all that God had done for them and all he was working out for them with Moses on the mountaintop. And so Moses was angry now. And so he says, I took the two tablets and I cast them out of my hands and I broke them before your eyes. Moses, these things that were intended to be a blessing from the finger of God, they now became an emblem of God's broken heart and his hot displeasure. As you hear this story, you can imagine, this is not easy to hear. You think, man, we did that. Moses isn't rehashing the story to make them feel guilty all over again. But again, it's a good reminder that they can never think they're hot stuff. They really did this. And that means they'd be capable of doing it again if they aren't careful to stay close to the Lord, if they don't remain humble. And I think it's crucial. I think it's important that we have a healthy view of our past. We don't just ignore what happened, but we say, Lord, I did do that. And I need to stay close to you and humble so that I don't go back that way again. Getting them out of this mess was not easy for Moses. In fact, he had no clue what to do. So much so that he fasted over the situation for another 40 days. Verse 18, and I fell down before the Lord as at the first, 40 days and 40 nights. I did neither eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins which you had sinned in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Why did he fast? Verse 19, for I was afraid of the anger and the hot displeasure wherewith the Lord was wroth against you to destroy you. That word afraid there, it's a very rare word in the Old Testament. Very rarely used, only a few times. It means to experience anxiety and dread about the future. Moses truly thought that they had blown it so badly that God might be done with them. He didn't know any way to rectify the situation. And so he spent 40 days. Again, now remember the dude hasn't eaten in 40 days. Now this time, I don't know if he fasted bread and water. I think it mentions water as well, but I'm not sure. But he takes 40 days where he's not gonna eat again. I don't know about you, but I'd be craving food at that point. And Moses is like, I can't just go back to normal life. I don't know what to do. I don't know, God might be done with us. This might be the end of the road. 
And so he begins to intercede for them. Now, why did Moses think that this was that big of a deal? It's interesting. Psalm 103, 7 says, the Lord, well, let me read it to you. It says that he made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. In other words, there's a difference there. The children of Israel saw his acts, but Moses really knew the Lord. He knew what God was like. Moses understood just how much God hated sin and just how wicked sin is. Sometimes we can treat sin like it's no big deal. You know, we can treat sin against our spouse that way at times and be like, well, you know, it happened. You know, I'm a sinner. Not realizing how much we've hurt them or maybe a brother or sister in the Lord. Well, yeah, you know, I was rude, but you know, I'm a sinner. It happens. I don't think that should ever be our approach to it, especially when you're making your apology. And Moses understood just how much God hated sin, that he was going to judge people for all eternity because of their sin. And so he knew that God never ignores sin, that if I continue in sin, he has to deal with me. And so Moses, as he is seeking the Lord here, he's afraid. I don't want you to be done with us, but I don't know how to fix this. So for 40 more days, he's praying and seeking the Lord and interceding. And verse 19 says, but the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron to have destroyed him. And I had to pray for Aaron also at the same time. God was ready to take it out on Aaron as well. And he said, I had to intercede for him too. While seeking God, Moses knew he had to do something about that idol. You know, he had to do something. That was a starting place. So he did. In verse 21, it says, And I took your sin, the calf which you had made, and I burnt it with fire. I stamped it and ground it into very small until it was as small as dust. And I cast the dust thereof into the brook that descends out of the mountain. And he doesn't tell us here, but he made all the people drink from it. And the idea is, I'm going to make you drink your idol. We'll see how powerful he is then. Just to point the thought that this is not a replacement for God. There's no comparison. When we're in sin or when we've done something horribly wrong, repentance is the immediate answer. That's the first thing we have to do. But it's not the only answer. Moses, he says, I prayed and the Lord hearkened unto me and he showed mercy. I prayed for Aaron and the Lord showed mercy there as well. Do you realize how much God hates sin? I think part of our journey in life is on this side is to gain a better understanding of how much God hates sin so that we would hate it too. That we would love what he loves and hate what he hates. That we'd become people who fear the Lord. God does not overlook sin. Sin is a big deal to God, so big that God had to come into this world, suffer horrific injustices, and die at the hands of sinners just to deal with our sin. It is costly, but God is merciful. He is loving. He freely blesses us and gives us grace based on His own goodness. He blesses and gives because that is who He is, not based on our own merit or goodness. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.